Welcome to Design Party Podcast, your one-stop shop for everything product design. I'm your host, Antonia, and today with me we have... Mr. Vitali. Hello to everybody. Hello. Nice to uh, have a little chat with you again. How do you feel today? I feel good. The sun is shining, even though they were saying today would be rain, and I'm very happy about that, but, you know... I'm ready for any changes that may or may not come later on in the day. Yeah, we kind of supposed to record something quickly outside, but forecast where was like maybe it's going to rain so we stayed indoors, sadly. Maybe some other day. But yeah, we were thinking talking about something that our listeners suggested recently on Twitter. And the topic would be designing with code in mind. I think that's a very interesting topic. Definitely. I mean, it's very vague topic, but also very clear. It's it's a weird topic, if you ask me. So when somebody says... Well, I have a question okay, to you. Okay, ask. Did you try coding or designing first? And which one... Or how soon after did the second one come for you like right. did you design first a little bit and then half a year later you were like hey what's this html css about but like what was your story with that well it kind of happened at the same time i i can't mm-hmm. say that something happened first because i remember designing some crap in in photoshop like my portfolio and i had like zero work to show because I was 12 (laughs) but at the same time there was this blog boom so I was already exploring html and css so it organically grew together it was not first I was just like designing and then coding I knew coding while I was still like learning how to design like it happened simultaneously and for you Yeah, pretty much the same. I mean, I was also like super young, but I might have even like played around with Netscape Composer even maybe before Photoshop. I'm not sure, but but they definitely grew hand in hand with me as well. And and I think that if you are a designer designing for digital services, products, even if that's just a website, I think that you owe uh, your team uh, that uh, you you kind of like get it get involved with the the basics of HTML and CSS to to kind of like understand the do- document object model and and how things are uh, are built and I think that that really helps be- everyone become even better at design because I think that you'll look at features like auto layout and Figma a little differently and 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 kind of understand the connection because nowadays we're so spoiled like I think it's funny when I started we didn't even have CSS like there was you know, styling in HTML that you would do inline and compositing was done using tables, which of course rendered <laughs> differently in every that. browser. That was... Oh yeah. And that was also the time when we had pixel perfect designs, you know, so we had like the one pixel border mm-hmm. going along and the repeating background patterns. And then it had to be somewhat responsive often that like it could kind of like grow. I mean, of course, back then it was very common that it was just like a fixed size. And then if your monitor was any smaller than 800 pixels wide, you know, you just have to s- scroll sideways. But, but uh, the, the best of us tried to make it so that at least there's some sort of like fluidity in, in, in the width. And, and so it was just a huge technical challenge for each design because they were like it's hard to put into words how graphically intense 
people wanted their websites to look. We had a lot of effects and, and, and 3D, but none of it was supported. It all had to be constructed through illusions uh, using uh, position hacking and, 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 and all kinds of important declarations. Remember buttons when button was actually a component of three items left like border radius yep and then right and then the middle yep. was actually like the thing that stretched with the text but it was so cool i remember when i discovered this like hack like you actually need to create left and right side and then your button has rounded corners and stuff like that that was like a big day <laughs> Oh yeah, and then like if you wanted to create like a, a nice big info box that you can like scale, then that was like five items, right? Because you had your top left and right, your bottom left and right. Oh yeah, and then of course your sides, vertically and horizontally, and then maybe even a, a, a tileable uh, pattern for, for the center because you don't want it to just be a solid color. No, 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 you want a little embossing, kind of like paper texture in it or something like this, like, whew. Crazy times. <laughs> I'm super happy that we don't have to design and develop using that technology anymore because I remember it was like super painful, but fun. Now that I compare mm. with what we have today, wow, we're so spoiled. So spoiled. Yeah. For example, we were chatting before we actually started to uh, record this and it seems that we both are redesigning, re-implementing our portfolios. Favorite mm -hmm. task of every designer. And for example... I had an idea like just a few days ago. Oh, I should probably update my portfolio. All of a sudden, I'm not happy how it looks. And I just roughly designed the layout in Figma. But then I just hopped into my usual tech stack and I'm using Tailwind CSS for like styling. And it took me literally one hour to put everything together, how I designed it in, in Figma. And it's crazy how fast we are these days. Are you also fast when you're designing your portfolio? Are you coding it with hand or are you paying, I don't know, Webflow for that? Yeah, I'm, I'm using Webflow as the tool because I really want to practice my kind of interaction animations and stuff. And I just, you, you know, definitely it's easier than ever to do things with code. I enjoy the visual aspect of using Webflow as a, as a code interface. And I really love their animation engine and, and the, the straightforwardness of it. So I've heard so many great things about Tailwind. I just, <laughs> I think that I have like bootstrap totally ruined me that like I do have a bit of like, um, I guess there's a Finnish saying for it, but like the English translation, I guess, would be like a, a, a mental impediment <laughs> uh, to, to, to kind of like wanting to use any type of front end framework. Uh, because I, I just have still PTSD nightmares of seeing code where it's like a div embedded in a div embedded in a span embedded in a div in order to activate some sort of styling that comes with Bootstrap or whatever. So I know that it's the, the situation is so much better nowadays, but I'm I'm always just like, let me build it from scratch. So it's exactly how I want it to be. Well, surprisingly, uh, or not surprisingly, Tailwind is very different from Bootstrap. And I think you would enjoy mm. it because you decide everything. There is no, like Tailwind is not opinionated. It has everything you need. It's a very different approach to uh, styling your website. But anyway, I think we are a little bit digressing. We are, we are, we are talking about code, like very serious things. When we say designing with code in mind... What kind of design it is for you? How, how do you see this? I will always remember when this topic comes up, I will always remember this one project I had with a previous employ employer where we were tasked with implementing a, like, I guess, a marketing agency's idea for 
a, a, a website for like a TV show or something. We were very media focused in that company during the mobile, the, the onset of the mobile revolution, right? So iPhone released 2007, iPad 2010. Uh, so this was around 2013, like the markets were still pretty new. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this the, the spec sheet that they sent over from this agency was like, three finger swipe from the right, open navigation menu. You know, a four finger swipe reveals this and this. And we were just like, oh, my God, like this is the most unusable spec that we've ever seen. So whenever people say, what does designing with coding in mind mean? For me, it means two things. First, on a, on a higher level, I think that it means that your designs are based on something that actually exists in the real world. This wasn't your idea of something you saw on Dribble or Behance. This is kind of like concepts that uh, utilize well-established interaction patterns and design patterns. And secondly, it means that it's realistically codable and it makes sense. So you don't have different data table designs for each view. You don't have seven different button sizes and, and styles. Uh, and, and these, of course, are, are closely related. You know, I think that like even though coders get a lot of uh, flack when it comes to design decisions, I think that they ultimately have a very good philosophy or mindset that they want to reduce complexity. They want to reduce, you know, the amount of styles used to get the end result for better and for worse, because, you know, you definitely should have more than like one heading style usually. But as designers then I think that we can easily have too many heading styles, too many font choices, too many shades of five different colors that we all use interchangeably. So I think that for me, designing with code in mind really means having a user center focus, not only on the end user, but also your team members who help you bring this design to life. Yes, um, that sounds really good. I definitely agree with that. I would also add to this designing with coding in mind would also mean getting closer to developers and maybe adopting their mindset because when it comes to development, they don't like to repeat themselves. This is why we have functions and variables, so we don't have needless repetition. And of course, like back in the day, people were writing spaghetti code, like nothing was connected really. It was just long, long, long code that did something. That kind of style is prone to errors and it's just best to maintain and just uh, ridiculous these days when you look back. I think design kind of was a little bit late to the game with let's not repeat ourselves, let's have uh, one source of truth. Um, developers figured that decades ago, we discovered that in maybe past five years, something like that, uh, when mm. design systems uh, became like very interesting to companies. I think... If you are a designer who wants to have also coding in mind, handoff and working with your developers and so on, you just need to tweak your mindset a little bit. Understanding that you don't want to repeat yourself and you want to be very predictable. That would also mean, for example, using one source of truth for spacings. So you don't have trivial, arbitrary, I don't know, uh, spacings all around your app, not caring like just, ah, oh, this looks good and leaving it there. If you want to make sure that your designs end up in production, how you draw them, drew them, sorry, then you should use like tokens, aka 
variables or, or uh, colors that are repeating constantly in your design, same spacings, uh, same goes for typography. That way developers can also translate your language into their language. And there you have it. You just designed with coding in mind. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that you bring a really important uh, aspect of this is that you need to collaborate. Like, I think that one of the misdirections of the conversation of design systems uh, easily overlooks the human aspect, the communication aspect of it. You know, we start thinking like, oh, what's the best tool for managing design systems? What's the best naming convention? And all of this. And ultimately, it really depends on what your team is about, what you're working on, and what life cycle stage you are with your product. And there is no copy-paste solution. I think that if there are, they're more on the processes side. And I really recommend people to Google design ops and to read like the NN Group's uh, introduction on that topic because there's some really uh, good uh, low-hanging fruit exercises that you can run with your team to kind of see like, how is it that we process bug reports right now? Or what is our organizational chart for decision making, for example? And even though these have nothing to do with pixels, they do end up really affecting how the relationship is between the pixels uh, in Figma and the ones like in, in your code. So whatever convention you decide on, it's best that you decide it together. It's kind of like uh, in any relationship, like, you know, healthy relationships aren't one person going somewhere, thinking and ruminating, and then coming back with the perfect solution uh, because the perfect solution could easily be rejected. Like I remember reading this, um, I don't remember, was it like a Reddit post or a Hacker News post, but someone was like, I just came to this multi-million dollar company. The code base is looks terrible and everyone is just all the time scrambling to extinguish fires. Everything is really hectic. And I think that we should just redo the code base and really like build it properly. And I'm not getting any buy-in for that. Like, what should I do? And Change up. So someone... <laughs> no well i mean sure that's one thing uh but basically the advice was like get approval from management or you know uh show it through example and whatnot but then someone was like you know all of this is true and none of this is true like if you're the new person coming in and being like this is how it should be you all suck <laughs> you know this all is shit then you know how can you expect people to be like, thank you, you are our personal savior. Yes, I am wrong. I am horrible. Show us the way. Like, you're never going to get that. And so, you know, they also pointed out that if this is something that is bringing in millions and millions of revenue, then, you know, you can you can call it horrible all you want, but it's doing a job. It's providing value for people. And so, like, first, what you should do is build a lot of tests, because if the code is really obscure and hard to read, then you should create systems that will uh, make it easier to figure out like whether or not what you're doing is breaking the systems or not. Because they were also saying like it was a really extreme case. Like they had no like everything was done in production. There was no real like kind of backups, oh, and wow. it was like really, really, yeah, a real shit very, show. Like you know, a teetering on disaster. <laughs> like very risky business. But same thing with design and code. You know, if you come in. And you say like, hey, listen, design systems are the future. They're the answer to everything. We should just put everything into a huge design system. I'm going to show you how to do it. You're not going to get a lot of buy-in. So instead of trying to be a dictator or someone who, you know, go is the, the, the lone wolf and doing it their own way, rather what you should try to do is to make a small but valuable change. So maybe don't try to create a design system for everything, but how about if you standardize your color palette? 
or your topography based on what already exists. And so then instead of kind of like not having shared tokens or variables like Antonio you were saying, uh, you start having standardized processes which will then in time save a lot of effort from people. And so it really is to take small steps to create a common shared language in kind of these daily processes of how do we deal with things? Where do we find information based on X? Uh, you know, is the naming convention identical? Are the things named the same way in Figma as they are in our uh, repository for the code? Like these might sound trivial, but they are the building blocks. And I think that one example that I used in in, in my uh, state of product design um, keynote was uh, based on what I saw when I had my keynote at Volt during the Volt Design Day that you organized that you had, uh, I think her name was Maria. She was showing uh, the kind of motion graphics documentation of like how uh, animations were communicated to developers. And I thought that that was a brilliant example of the fruits that this type of labor can cause. Because if you're unable to have a common shared language on buttons and colors, how are you ever going to be able to manage to create an environment where you're going to be able to work on micro interactions and animation design? You know, so if you want to reach these high levels of high quality user experience, you need to start from the building blocks, from the base level and build from the ground up to, to get to a level where then you have such good processes and uh, common language that you can work on very high level things. Yeah, I have like two things on mind right now. Even if you understand how coding works, like how this design is going to be morphed into something that's on your phone or website, it's always, and I'm telling this from my own experience, no matter how good you are with understanding uh, production of one app, for example, or some product, it's always crucial to talk with your closest peers, teammates, who will actually collaborate with you on whatever you're working on, because it can happen that your product lead, the developer, other designers, they have like a little bit different workflows in mind. So even though you all might be like super proficient in, in some topic, but if you have a little bit different, um, how would I say, approach to this, then the whole system can collapse super bad and the result can be really bad and poor and something that nobody is proud of. So I would always recommend people to definitely talk with their developers. Um, how do they want to collaborate? This is uh, what I do every time when I'm in like a new team. I meet developers and I say, okay, th these are my skills. I can do this, this, and this. I know that this will be good for you because you will have less work. Uh, for example, I will just check your pull request on GitHub, whatever. It reduces workflow tremendously. And uh, they tell me what they expect from me. I tell them what I expect from them. And then we find the balance and, and it's easier. That's also a great way to learn new things. But I have one question for you. You know that question should designers code is always you know this controversy and uh, reason for flame wars on twitter and elsewhere what do you think ah, should i even ask do you think should uh, designers code i'm afraid to ask this question to be quite honest well i think that that's <laughs> a, a straightforward question uh, like a simple one i think that designers should know something about coding just like coders should know something about designing i don't 
necessary like i think that it's a, a a great thing to strive for that you would be able to evaluate uh code in github run you know a development instance on your computer and uh you know kind of make some semantic sense of something like react and and, and typescript but i don't think that that's necessarily required to be a valuable member of a team because again it's about shared language and i think that what you said was very brilliant of like really putting the cards on the table when you begin of like this is what i'm good at this is what i enjoy doing this is what i would not like to do and to really carve out those areas of responsibility and and finding ways that you can best collaborate together and that always at best involves some experimentation and iteration like again don't try to get it all done uh you know on the first meeting and then have that uh, be the truth until time immorium you know i think that ultimately we should try to be as much in code as possible you know because anything that we make in figma will never a user will never see that unless we do like user testing with a prototype and so i think that actually like we as designers should have our focus on the customer experience first and foremost and this is also why it's so valuable to have variables and tokens and and these kind of like you know a few like three different button types for example and then make use of them so that we can then focus on more you know honing the information architecture on building prototypes which we can then link to developers and go through with them so that especially now with interactive components uh it just makes so it, it it's so much easier to create uh realistic feeling um prototypes that really i think from my experience has immensely helped communicating with developers that i no longer have to describe for them or build this huge annotated customer journey map with layouts Jesus, of like when I they click that. here then oh my god such a waste know, of I know, time it's just such a waste of time yes and so instead there is prototypes and loom or another just like doing a video recording i'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going crazy about yeah, loom. you know that here we go again <laughs> every time we talk <laughs> you it doesn't matter like last uh three weeks every time we talked you mentioned loom topic is not important <laughs> loom <laughs> <laughs> go ahead praise well, the loom because we talk a lot because i mean that that is the th praise the loom uh that a lot of what we do is about communication and about collaborating with other people and so the thing why i really love prototypes and screen recordings is that we spend less time trying to figure out a good neutral way of wording our things and rather we just focus on showing and then communicating what we mean by what we've shown. Good design removes friction and that's why I really love these services because they, like with Figma now, we get so much closer to what the end result will be versus what it was like using Sketch and InVision and that we have that inspect tool uh, to help developers uh, even like export assets, which we might have forgotten to export for them or something like this. Like it's just removing so many barriers. But I think that the less time you're able to spend in Figma and the more you're able to work with developers doing quality assurance of maybe helping them uh, define CSS, you know, or SAS styles within the project will be so much more worth it for, for, for creating a great end result than if you make the most elaborate and amazing Figma files. Like, no one cares. Like, this is, we have to get over ourselves as designers that we should work in Figma sufficiently to get the end result we want into code and no more. Let's make this even simpler for people because uh, all these talks you can hear like on YouTube or 
your favorite podcasting app, it's very broad, almost vague a little bit. So I was thinking while you were talking, I was uh, uh, I was thinking how to make this topic a little bit easier to understand for somebody who might just start with designing. What we're talking right now is just nonsense, I would assume. If you create, okay, whenever you create something in Figma, that can be a text or a layer that is a rectangle, for example, every element has a set of properties that describe how this thing looks. So if you click uh, in Figma or in Sketch, in whatever tool you're using, honestly, at this point, it doesn't matter. There's probably inspect tab somewhere, probably on the right, it usually is there. And then you will hear, you will read, not hear Jesus, uh, all the properties this element has. And then if you start noticing same values over and over again, with different properties, you should make it like a style, something that you can constantly reuse. This is what it means, for example, uh, design with coding in mind. Start noticing patterns. That's also very important. One thing that we didn't mention at all, uh, and I th think it's actually very important for companies, probably the most important thing. Uh, so let's say you have a project and you have three days to complete it. Of course, we can design 20 different proposals. Uh, implementation can be anything we want, right? But we have three days and our product manager is like super like worried that we're not going to make it because this is important. We need to hit the due date. I would separate awesome designer opposed to average designer, like just good designer. If um, like by, by knowing HIG, for example, human interface guidelines um, by heart and understanding what things developer can code fast and what things developer can code super slow. So if you have three days, go of course with the something that, that is balanced, that can be coded in that amount of time. But also if if you know like how things can look, then yeah, I'm thinking, I, I, do you understand what I'm trying to say? I, I, I am sure I'm not explaining this the right way. Do you understand what I'm trying to, to get here? Well, that the faster the turnover needs to be, the more important it is that we know the fundamentals that we can then quickly apply. Kinda. I, I wouldn't say fundamentals because it's not fundamental knowledge for a designer. Uh, at this point, it's nice to have kind of knowledge. Okay, let me give you a ex real example. Because I think this is very important. People never really talk about it. We have a bottom sheet. Uh, and we have this custom made, this beautiful thing that we designed in Figma. Developer needs full week to, to make this thing like we designed it. But if they use just whatever comes with operating system, it's a matter of minutes to create it. This is what I'm trying to reach to. If you know mm. uh, how much effort um, is, is something, then you can also balance your decisions and uh, you know pull back when time is tight and you need to just make things work. But also you know go crazy because you know that things can be customized in a different way. 
I mm. guess that's my point I am trying to get across. Not sure if I managed. Listeners, comment if you understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, uh, the way I hear it is that when we work on projects, sometimes time can be tight. And so let's say we have, our, we have like, one thing that I noticed some years ago was the the attempt of removing drop-down functionality so that, for example, dropbox.com, if you would uh, click on what looked like a drop-down to select your folder, instead of seeing this kind of like expand into a menu to select from, it popped up a modal, and then you would select from there. So you'd have a much bigger area of uh, that would be overtaken. The, your entire screen would change into a selector to to then see much clearer your, your kind of like folder hierarchy and whatnot. Now, I think that that's a brilliant way to help users select what they're looking for. But when it goes into uh, development for the first time, when you're having your first sprint or whatnot, you might not have time for this uh, fantastic new feature. And so you need to be able to figure out alternatives to suggest, which will be much faster to implement, but that will still allow the users to have the desired outcome. And the less you're knowledgeable about uh, system coding conventions or like what exists easily, the, uh, this can make it much more difficult and kind of put more pressure on developers to figure out the best user experience to compensate that. on. You will not even be around the table when these decisions will be made. If you don't know anything mm. about it, then developer will just say, okay, this is the easiest way and so on. And, and actually, this is something also I, I see a, a, a lot of that, like in practice, because also as designers, we can so easily get caught up in the sunny day scenario where the user presses on the right thing and, and everything goes smoothly. Internet connection is uninterrupted and all of this, that then when the developer goes to implement the login screen, they're like, hmm. We don't actually have a layout for what the error should look like if the password is yeah. wrong or if the email is not valid. And then they have to kind of like make decisions because it might be that the designer is no longer available or they're working on something else. Developers have to continually make design decisions. And the more that we can understand what kind of things usually are missing from our designs, the more we can help them. You know, like when you go into a folder and there's nothing there. You don't want to see just a blank screen. You should have some sort of information for the user and ideally a, a button with an action to, to or a link to help them move forward so it's not a dead-end screen. But so often we forget these and if we're not collaborating with our developers, we kind of like leave it to them. And it can often be that they see like, all right, well, I've coded this. I don't really have any idea of what this should look like empty, but it works, so I'm going to move on to the next thing. So the amount of opportunities you can find to make your designs better and the user experience so much better really are uh, dependent upon having a healthy collaborative relationship with your development team. Yeah, and it directly translates into conversions or some numbers that matter for your company because if you design only for best case scenario, then you're missing, like Vitaly said, uh, for like error messages, uh, error states, and so many other states that um, app can have. And it's really hard to predict everything, like when you are just designing with yourself or with your design friend, 
you you will never figure out every possible outcome of of that one view or one click of a button so many things can happen and sometimes not even most common things like you need to know but you also need to know like how your backend like works and maybe something else will introduce some other error so it's super super important to ask developer questions okay I want to mm. know all the states of this login uh, view. What we need to consider here? What if somebody presses here? Do we trigger some error message? What if there is no internet and stuff like that? I think uh, it's pretty easy to find like some articles that at least list all these common states uh, that probably every app mm. has. But also it's very good to discuss and test this with your developer because you never know. I code myself, but I still get feedback from developers Oh, we don't have designs for this obscure case. So, all right, uh, sure, let's add this. I didn't even think that can happen. So let's go back to the whiteboard. Um, Definitely. Uh, and you can even just Google, you know, 10 things you probably forgot to design. <laughs> and there's a lot of these like really, really good lists and, and checklists for uh, from different services of like, all right, when you're making like a, a, a account creation, for example, then like, did you consider these and this and these things? Yes. Definitely. Uh, I have one maybe controversial thing to, to say, like knowing like how, how coding works without actually knowing like how to produce like full blown apps, but like a little bit. So like, you know, what's possible, what's not. Of course, if you can code yourself, then you're really good. You can, you can come up with it, I I would argue better designs. I had a little fight on Twitter with somebody who said that no designers should not code and that's that's out of question. Blah blah blah. <laughs> anyway, not going into that topic. If you understand how your designs gets translated into production, um, into code, into actual app, then you can avoid situations where, and this is question for you, Vitaly. How many times did you hear oh we can't do this we can't technically mm -hmm. do this designs did you hear that a lot less nowadays thankfully mm -hmm. but but yeah it's it's a, a very simple gut reaction of just like nah <laughs> yes uh so what happened uh, a couple of times to me is because i understand um how developer will take my designs and, and make code out of it because i did it myself I, I sometimes would get this answer like, oh, it's, it's, it's not technically possible or something. And sometimes I'm not saying every developer is like that, like disclaimer. I just say it can happen. Maybe. Hashtag not all programmers. Not all programmers. <laughs> I would get like, no, like pushback. And then I would say, but yeah, but can't you just do X and Y? Why would that be like so, so difficult? It requires a little bit of more effort. Uh, and this is why the first initial reaction was no, 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 because it has ever so slightly a little bit more complexity and it uh, requires a little bit more lines of code and stuff like that. So sometimes I feel like I'm protected with that knowledge because I can call out bullshit. <laughs> and mm, definitely, uh, I mean, developers are very passionate and protective uh, of their code and they like to have it like in a very smart way, like everything written with super duper logic and whatnot, super tidy. And the more they need to write, there is a more chance that something will go wrong or it will not look so good and blah, blah, blah. Yes, mm. code can look good, believe it or not. 
and yeah if you can be like a work of art and if you push some change that would require a little bit complex code it's very easy to get like oh no it's not technically possible Mm. or something like that when in fact everything is possible it's just how how much effort you need to put into it yeah, and what, what's reasonable. Yeah. And I think that also, like, a part of it has to do with uh, a very, uh, you know, healthy thing of, of the developer trying to protect their mental health. Yeah, of course. <laughs> because the, the, the more uncertainty you have around something, then the, the less likely someone's going to be excited to try to make it happen. You know, so a lot of it can be just, like, reducing the barrier of uh, imagination and, and what already exists in some form. And so... Sometimes, you know, especially when it comes to like responsive behaviors, I find it to be much easier just to open up Webflow and recreate uh, what I have in Figma, maybe a bit of a simplified version, and then add those breakpoint rules of how I want these objects to behave, and then giving that to them so they can, you know, poke and prod at it in their own context and see like, all right, this is how it goes. Now I understand this, like how, for example, relative units will be much better than absolute pixel values for, you know, how, how these objects are resized. And again, if that's not possible, then maybe protopy, uh, prototype. Uh, if that's not possible, then After Effects animation. Yes, don't but, recommend but, these people. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I had... It's been a very long time since I've had to do that, but I'm just saying that like the main, like even just drawing a storyboard, you know, of sticks, uh, you know, lines and, and, and circles and squares, the less the developer has to imagine, the more uh, accurately they can imagine what the effort will be to actually make it in code. And even that might be significantly wrong, especially if you know how to code and you show them like, hey, this doesn't require you hacking stuff with JavaScript. This can be done with CSS. It's straightforward. This took me 30 minutes to do here. You know, it's a completely different conversation. Yeah, kind of to summarize, if that's even possible, because we went uh, into all possible directions. So when you are designing uh, with coding in mind, then you will... I should stop saying like filler word. I noticed that I am... Good luck, I've tried. (laughs) It's insane how many times I'm able to say this in a podcast. It's so hard to edit because of this. And... I said to myself before this podcast, I will be better this time. I will not say like, and then every sentence is like, 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 like. Anyways, if you want to be a goody, good designer, then you will see patterns and then you will use that knowledge to create some form of style, repeatable content that you can just easily assign to your designs. So you have repeatable and predictable like space, did you hear that? I said like, Jesus. You have to let it go. But I'm I'm so sad. Like I want to be a good podcaster, but, but I'm shit because I I can't speak English. Anyways, you know what? I just remembered while we were mentioning Figma and um, repetitiveness and blah, blah, blah. Why don't we have in Figma styles, like styles for spacings? Might be coming soon. I've heard uh, tokens are yeah. just around the corner. Yeah. But yeah, what I do nowadays is just I have empty frames and then I use those as spacers. Like empty components that are just frames that are an absolute size. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> you draw yourself a frame yes. such as 32 times mm-hmm. 32 pixels and then you press that create component button and you name it spacer forward slash 32 pixels. Oh shit, you're doing it and, like or that. Or 2EM. 
Yeah, and so that way you can create, for example, auto layout boxes with uh, zero spacing and zero padding, and instead you just have these different um, spacer component blocks that then serve that same function. But isn't it just easier to tweak your nudge amount in properties and then just use auto layout how it's intended to be used? Yeah, but that's the decision you have yeah. to make as a team. Do you want to use spacers or do you want to use okay, auto layout Vitaly's uh, values? Okay, Vitaly's team spacers, Antonio's team use just an auto layout with uh, nudge amount and arrow keys and just like... But it would be cool if... Well, I, yeah, go, go on. Yeah, I, I didn't say that I was necessarily ah, a user of this system. Okay. It is something that I... Te- if you look at, for example, the YouTube video of let's uh, create a design system by Figma, that, then this is what they used in their approach. They define these kind of like component <laughs> blocks. Um, I, I think both uh, have uh, both approaches are good, but I would say that if you are using just free values in auto layout, you run the risk of having many unstandard sizes, which then removes the ability of using tokenized values for it. Well, I have to say, I, I saw this pattern still in sketch days. And I remember there was one plugin that did that, like using blocks for for spaces. And uh, I thought it was brilliant because we didn't have anything better back then. But I quickly stopped using that because Figma has features that allow you to do this in a much simpler way. And I never write values in, in these input boxes. I use shift and arrow keys. This is how I navigate around values in Figma. You will very rarely see me typing something. And if I would type, I always type 8, 16, 24, <laughs> and, you know, because I already memorized like eight point scale. So it's, I never put like 17. There is no reason for that. But what about 12? I used 12. And 20. Uh, 20, I never had any reason to use 20. But sometimes I noticed 10. Uh, sometimes looks very good with, with certain things in design, like much better than eight or 12, even though the difference might be like super small, but these two pixels like really mm. matter. Uh, but yeah, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, we could go into this whole topic of like <laughs> yeah. how font sizing is oh so relative, God. and you have to be optical with it, no matter what the numbers say. And like, ooh, like if you want to see this with your own eyes, just uh, create two text boxes. Use one with Courier New and the other with Arial, and just compare their sizes, x heights. I mean, it's as if the Courier New had like a third of a smaller font size put on it. So. Yeah, fonts are own little programs and they'll never look the same in Figma as they do in HTML. Uh, Yeah, that's a whole other topic in and of itself. But there is a plugin called Figma Tokens that can uh, help import and export values based on a a JSON file. And that includes, uh, you know, variables for spacing. But again, they've also been talking about how like, what are we going to do once tokens become native functionality? Can't wait. I really... I'm very happy to see how are they going to implement because you mentioned this Figma plugin tokens or token master, I think two are very popular right now. And I try to use them. Yeah, cool. They do the job. Very smart. I still want to see a native solution for that because mm. I I don't want to rely on plugins for such a core functionality uh, mm. of my designing tool there's no way i would i would rely on plugin for that so yeah. i i didn't want to use them in in my projects I, I was just waiting for figma to come up with something and 
they said that soonish, I guess, uh, maybe in next couple of months we will see tokens in Figma natively. I wonder if they will also in- include space as a token. They have to. I really hope because <laughs> it would to. be so much easier to, you know, just press arrow or something and then you switch to, to next token. I think it would be so, mm. so much easier. Less less errors, errors for sure. Yeah, I think that the sketch era really burned us all on <laughs> mi- using plugins yeah. that are then core functions to your uh, design systems. Um, and I, that's one thing I really love about Figma is that plugins can only run one at a time and they can just kind of like generate things into Figma and maybe keep like a meta tag connection, but can't kind of like control it. But uh, yeah, there's definitely, I've used plugins that don't work as they should uh, and, and, you know, sometimes that they've worked and then they stop working and it's just a nightmare and the complete antithesis of what I want to have happening. So I'm also, uh, not using this Figma tokens plugin. I think they've done a uh, really cool work and I'm also really looking forward to the day when we get native token functionality properly inside of, uh, Figma. It would be so funny if... I'm done with uh, editing this podcast and the next day they're like, oh, Figma update, tokens <laughs> are here, boom. We listened and delivered. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. By the way, just uh, if, out of curiosity, since we're talking about teams, uh, what, what, what kind of uh, naming conventions do you uh, prefer most for like colors and topography in your design systems? Well, I'm quite flexible with that. I don't really... I don't care that much about naming. Um, I try to align with whatever is more convenient for development. So, mm. for example, I, I really like just using like numbers, 10, 20, 30, like using scale from 10 to 100 or 100 to 1000, whatever people use these days, it really doesn't matter, but just having some increments. Mm. I, I find that good. Uh, with colors, I I used lately in my personal project that kind of approach. So let's say I have 10 steps in my scale of color blue. And I made a plugin that, that makes these things easy. I made it how I would use it. So I don't, I'm not sure if that would be usable for all people. But I'm not sure. I want to hear your opinion. Should the primary, like main color, start from 100 or be like in the middle, 500 and then go down? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, like I I personally nowadays try to avoid naming my colors with their intended function, uh, just as a side note. But yeah, I've, I've skewed towards um, having the default or the main color or if I use numbers and fonts, that 500 is like the baseline, basically. And then everything is kind of like either more or less. But I've started to think like maybe using 50 or even 5 rather than 500. Um, I think maybe 50, because of course, the great thing about the numeric naming system is that let's say you have a very light color and you have it as 100, and then you have the normal color at 500, you don't have to necessarily define those middle points. But let's say that you do, and you have like, 100 to 500 and then you want to use the kind of like 100 as a background color but then when you start using it you realize like in many conditions it's a bit too dark so then you can make a 50 
uh, or then if you notice that you need a shade between 200 and 300, you can name it 250. And so it immediately kind of goes into the, the naming convention. Uh, but whereas if you use something like, you know, large, medium, small, or, or, or light, very light, super duper light, then it can easily get semantically very confusing rather than clear, which is what we want the naming convention to provide for us. Yeah, this is exactly why I like numerical naming uh, opposed to like t-shirt naming or something else that's also cool. But I have to say in previous company we had, was it color? I don't even remember. I think we had colors named with t-shirt analogy so medium small mm. xxl and stuff like that and that worked pretty great because it pushed us not to use that many colors because it was limited and also what i find uh, these days we have so many colors 95 percent of them i never used ever in my design nor i will i only ever use like five different colors styles in figma because I don't, it's just not a convention to use other colors. So what I would like to see is uh, Figma being able to extrapolate your most used colors uh, and and maybe put them like on top. Because I spent actually quite a lot of, well, minutes, I wouldn't say hours, finding that, that one color. I know where it is, but like there's hundreds of, of styles. Mm -hmm. So I need to like really, really go into drop down. That's like super tiny. Thanks Figma mm -hmm. and find it. And also I'm not a big fan of this humongous color systems. I mean, I made a plugin that allows you to do that, but I necessarily am not a fan of that. I say make colors that you will actually use period. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, one thing that maybe we can link to people if they want to check it out is this um, talk given by Asana at uh, Schema 2021, mm -hmm. where they were talking. There was a Gina Ann and Ainsley Wagner, or Wagner, I think her name is, and and they their naming convention for their colors is really interesting. That basically, like, they have kind of like a decision flow chart. So they have like you know colors for default, for success, and for warning, and they call that like the sentiment like what is like the the vibe basically and then they have usage is it background is it text is it icon or is it border and then they have prominence is it the normal one do we want it to be weaker or stronger and then it's the interaction is it default hover active or disabled and then when you kind of like say which one it is for these four then you know which color to use and it's a very kind of like novel way of of um, tokenizing colors and and streamlining their usage uh, that is very different from the approaches that i have because for me like i'm more coming from my background i like to more create building blocks like atoms which I then build in in, in a different, uh, then I give them meaning in these different contexts. So I might have like my color palette, but then it's only within like the warning modal that I define that it is red 500 for the border and red 800 for the text, for example, or whatever this may be. But it is uh, interesting to kind of like go semantic forward uh, with your naming conventions and tokens that like instead of kind of like having that meaning uh, be placed on them at the molecule level that you kind of like at the very beginning when you create the definitions 
So instead of having a color palette, you have, you know, like basically like an intention palette. <laughs> yes. And I think tokens will unlock that for everybody because we will have our color styles and then we will have our tokens. And for those who don't really know how tokens work, you can have, let's say something that's called button background color and border table view or something like that and they both can use the same color same style so mm. you can't name your style border for button because what if it's used elsewhere then what your table view will have border for button that makes no sense it's very confusing you don't want to go that rabbit hole so instead of that you have your nice colors but tokens um, describe where it should be applied or something like that and then you can reuse color styles for very different like like tokens for example like border or image i don't know line bottom or stuff like that whatever you want to use so I'm looking forward to, to this update to see how are they going to pull it off because I would like to see drop down. Um, I don't want to see colors. I want to see the object I want to color, style, or intention, mm. button, <laughs> button background or something like that. So I don't even have to think about what color it is. It's not even important. Exactly. I need to follow design system. So why do I need to like even know what's the color? Sure, if I need to override for something, there that should be a possibility. But imagine Figma with the drop-down background uh, for button or something like that. Brilliant. Yeah. Ah, uh, we can dream. And yeah, definitely a topic with many opinions and approaches. And I think that um, the takeaway message that I hope uh, listeners take from all of this is that call you know like when people say like call your parents it's like so you know talk to your developers <laughs> don't don't you know melt those silos and try to do different experiments to create a more integrated design approach uh the, the closer you can align what you're doing in figma to what's happening in the code and ideally focusing with the developers to make the code as good as possible uh, will bring you much more value than tinkering around with uh, Bezier curves and and uh, border radius pixel values in Figma. Yeah, and I don't want anyone to feel discouraged because they didn't understand half of these things that we mentioned today. If you start talking with your developer and who knows, maybe a little bit educating yourself on the side, you will understand that there are many different ways how you can influence... Um, that your developer is more empowered to use your design how you intended it to use, not um, just, you know, doing something and, and calling it a day or a PR. Well, yeah, and, and in the same way that you don't have to know how to play music to be able to, you know, jam out with the musician and say like, what if you give me a melody like, bam, 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 bam. But it'll be much easier if you're able to say like, it sounds like it's in the C mm -hmm. major scale and I want a staccato feeling. Yeah. So yeah, the, the, the more you can build a common vocabulary, the easier it will be to work together. But definitely don't take this as a message that you need to become them. No, just know your strengths, but be able to have a shared language and you'll create a much better result and have much more fun doing it. Yes, and for those uh, designers who super hate development and code and will never learn anything about coding, that is still fine. Sure, go ahead. But there is a way to, like you said, build a common vocabulary and improve the whole thing and, and workflows. 
And there's no way that you will not learn or, or develop your own workflow that will tremendously improve how you approach your designs. I think that happens organically if you start talking with developers. But yeah, I think exactly. we shared shit ton in, in this episode. We went in very different paths with, with this thinking. So from my side, uh, thank you for listening. If you are listening from Spotify, you can leave us a message. And now I will leave Mike to Vitali to sign us off. We're always happy to hear from our viewers. So be sure to tag us on Twitter, find us on the social medias, <laughs> and uh, have fun working together. Together, we are better than alone. Wow, that's so deep. <laughs> Bye. Bye.